So in our text from James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he points us to that word of truth that brings us forth as, it says, a sort of first fruits of creation. What does that mean? Well, right now it's winter, right? And sometime, God willing, three months from now, the trees that don't have any leaves on them are going to begin to bud. You're going to see the first fruits, the beginning of spring coming out. Now, the word also means the first of your crops, right? So after you harvest, the first part of your harvest, that's your first fruits. But for the sake of understanding what it means for us to be the first fruits of the new creation, I want you to imagine us as those buds on the tree and earth is the dead tree. But your faith that he is risen, he is risen Alleluia, that is the first fruit of a new life to that tree that's here already. I think I said this to you last week, maybe I didn't, but think of yourselves as people from the future. You're from the future paradise, you're just here early amongst all of those who don't know it's coming. And you have within you the Holy Spirit of God who desires to make you lift up your voice in praise of that future now. And the reality is that by such praise, by such words, other people who don't know about that future will repent of their unknowing and come to believe in it, thereby also becoming people from the future, first fruits of the everlasting and eternal kingdom of God. It is the word of truth that makes this happen. It is the scriptures that make this happen. That is why we are devoting ourselves as a congregation this year to learning what the Bible says, to taking these bird's eye view of all of these different books and being able to see ways you can engage the book, a way you can go into it and begin to understand it. And of course, I challenged you all at the beginning of this year, not only to follow along with me in the Bible while I preach through these various books, but to consider taking notes, to write down something that you hear, and then look at that again later. In fact, we even put cards and pens in the pew to make that easy for you. Why? Why? Because when you write down something you have heard, you have a tendency to believe it more firmly. You're not going to write down what you disagree with it unless you believe something else firmly you want to argue about, right? You're going to write down what you want to know, and it will actually deepen your knowledge. Later that week, you might see that card. It'll say James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. You're like, oh, yeah, that was good. I'm going to go reread that again. So if you don't know what to write down, first write down the text we're going to look at. We're not going to read through all of James, but James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. That's worth returning to this week. It's worth opening every day and just reading that little part for yourself as an encouragement about what it means to be, again, the first fruits of the saved people of God in this present age. Now, if you want to turn in your pew Bible to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, that's on page 1011. Of course, if you've got your own Bible, I, I do encourage you to do that, to get to know your Bible. Yeah, But... Uh, Oh, I had a good transition and I lost it. That's okay. James chapter one, verses two through eight, again, is going to encourage us. Ah, there's the transition. Encourage us to stand as these people of the future, knowing something other people don't know. And what we know is that the God who is running everything is a God of grace. 
He's a God who desires mercy more than sacrifice. He's not up there trying to test you to find out whether or not you're good enough for the next life. He's up there knowing none of us are good enough for the next life. And so he's taken it upon himself, literally in our scars and nails, his pierced hands, his pierced side. He's taken it upon himself to be good enough for us. That knowledge of him being sufficient for you is James' point. We're going to look closely at chapter 2 here in a few moments where you have anyone who doesn't like the idea of grace, they always say, what about James 2? If you teach that Jesus has justified the sinner by grace alone, well, then the Pope will say, what about James 2? Out with you, Luther. And of course, as Lutherans, this is a big deal for us. But it really isn't about the Pope or Rome or Luther or, frankly, I've run into many Baptists and evangelicals who'll say the same thing as the Pope. They'll say, no, you're not saved by grace alone. What about James 2? The best answer to that is, what about James 1? What about James 4 and 5? What about the whole book? Who's the Savior? It's Jesus, right? He's the one who saves. Okay, that's the idea that Luther was trying to point out. You're not saved by buying it. That's what was happening then. They'll still sell it to you now, by the way. But he was, you don't, you're not saved by buying it. You're saved because Jesus Christ wants you. He chooses you. He elects you. He dies for you. He rose for you. I'm going to teach you another phrase today and see if we can start working it into our, our liturgy of call and response, all right? So we've already got, he is risen. He is risen. Alleluia. This one's going to come back later here. Christ has come. Christ is risen. And you say, Christ will come again. Here we go. Christ has come. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Good. James wants you to know that. And that at his second coming, everything that's wrong will be made right. And that's why hoping in this life right now is stupid. It's foolish. It's like building a castle on the beach. I mean, you're going to build a castle on the beach, but do you think it's going to last forever? No, that would be stupid. You're not going to live in it. You want to live in a house built on a rock, not on the sand, right? James wants you to know this with such certainty that you cease being a double-minded person, that you cease being someone who's pressured by every new idea, that your knowledge of what is written clearly in the scriptures is sufficient, that when someone comes along saying something different, like Christians don't meet on Sundays anymore, you say, that's not what the Bible says. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, because that's what Christians do. Or you'll say, That's not what the third commandment says. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That's what Christians do. So by arming yourself with the knowledge of the scripture, you become a single-minded person. Again, a person who has a mind set on things to come that will give you the hope to endure the things that are. All right, so chapter one, two through eight, it is about endurance. It is about endurance. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
Let's just stop there for a second. I mentioned a moment ago, God's not up there testing you to see if you make it. And here James says, it's testing your faith. Yeah, but he's not trying to see if you make it. He's not trying to trip you up. He's pruning you. Huh? He's tempering you. He's giving you something to walk through that he knows will strengthen you. And for that reason, James says, consider it joy when you find such obstacles. Even the Stoics, ancient Greek philosophers, they're making a comeback. You can find their books at Barnes and Noble. Even the Stoics understood the obstacle is often the best path. A challenge is something that strengthens the will. How much more when you know this is what God has prepared for you? That you don't just have karma, you have the will of Jesus Christ. For such a time as this, you have been born, bought, paid for, restored, and awakened to life to know that you are to endure through it and shine like stars on the other side. Now that's the wisdom that lets you endure again. That's what we're pushing for. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, is your heart always questioning? Is your mind always doubting? Do you feel like you can't see? If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. This doesn't mean wealth. This doesn't mean you get to live to be 130 and be super strong the whole time. Wisdom is knowing how to parse the times, how to see your day, how to know today has got enough trouble, but Jesus is sufficient for it all. And if you find that that faith is not strong enough in you, the answer is ask Jesus for it. Stop trying to buckle down and gird it up yourself. That's not where it comes from. It comes from him. Now, we did this back in the fall when we started this series and we were in the book of Proverbs. So I, I want you to do it again today. I want you to repeat after me, all right? Jesus, give me wisdom. Jesus. Yeah, so now this time, don't just repeat it, right? But this time, I want you to believe, because you do, Jesus is on a throne. He can hear everything that's going on right now and he's listening to you, okay? I'll say it first. Jesus, give me wisdom. Jesus. Okay, now no, he's going to answer that prayer. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it. He doesn't say no, right? And if, you, if you're still worried, say, Jesus, I repent. Jesus. There you go. That, that's the first wisdom that there is, right? It's to know that to be alive is to be turned around by Jesus, to turn the other way, and to say, I repent. I don't want to be evil anymore. This is vast wisdom. The opposite of the worldly teaching. All right, so then again, it will be given you. Now look at verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That doesn't mean you're never gonna have doubts as a Christian. It means when he says, I promise to give you wisdom, ask for it. And you ask for wisdom, don't walk away and be like, I don't know if he's gonna do it for me. I'm not, I'm not sure if he'll do it for me. Don't do that. You know, I mean, it's not that hard. Walk away and believe it. He's going to give you wisdom. He's going to strengthen your faith. How? By giving you trials of various kinds. Yeah? By showing you your sin, so you have to repent of it. I mean, it's not like it's all flowers and butterflies. Yeah? But it is all true. And it is all real. And it will establish you. We're going to kind of get back to that idea of endurance again here in a moment. But the, perp the person who says, Jesus, give me wisdom. I don't know if Jesus really is a thing at all. He's going to give me wisdom. I'm not going to read the Bible at all. No, I don't want to do that. Well, that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable 
in all his ways. I'm convinced that's not who you are. It's not why you're here. But it's important to know that such people are out there. And that if you are, as a congregation, say, going to be double-minded, you can't expect many blessings. I don't want to get into the doctrine of closed communion right now. That, that communion is about your pastor caring for your soul. And so you don't just walk in off the street and take communion unless you don't really know what's going on or you don't care. The point is not to defend that right now. The point is that that practice does upset people. It does. It upsets people. And, and those people sometimes, they, they get upset and they go away and they never come back. And for like the last hundred years, Lutherans in America are like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if we should do this. We should probably change this. This doesn't seem very nice. I don't know. Double-minded. If we don't believe what we have is worth having as we've received it, then it will be taken away from us. And again, I'll say it this way here. Right now, every institution in this country, from the highest court of the land, if you're following it, all the way down to local schools and LCMS universities and our district's offices and the LCMS itself, Every single institution in this country is being challenged. They're, they're wobbling. Their, their financial structures aren't quite what they used to be. Their ability to get things done seems to be hampered at every turn. The whole thing's wobbling. Why? They're double-minded. Why? They're trying to serve all things without truth. We've built these institutions as if they will last forever without any promise from God that they will last forever. The church is going to last forever. That doesn't mean everything we ever build will. And if it is going to last forever, it's going to be founded upon the institution Christ gave us. This summer, hopefully, we'll finally get around to looking at a constitutional overhaul for our church. But the thing is, it doesn't matter. Because that's just how we decide to vote on the budget. That's basically all that is. What matters is the institution Christ has given us. This supper, on the night he was betrayed, he instituted a new covenant, never to pass away. And behold, it's still here. And those of you who've been coming through the last three years, not letting any of the stories dissuade you, you know what a strength it has been to you. You know how it has established you. And let me tell you, as your pastor, it's established us as a church, as a place, as a people. So while all these other institutions are coming and going and some might survive and some will be different, none of it matters is the point. If we put our trust in them, God will tear them down. If we put our trust back in him, who knows, he may yet relent. And so again, the path for Christians in these here United States is always going to be to repent and ask the Lord to restore good government where we see that it's been taken. To repent and ask the Lord if we want to have schools where we teach people, Lord, give them to us, right? If we want to have a mission for the church where people convert and believe, it won't be because we pull up our britches and say, we're going to do more mission now. Everyone go door to door. It's going to be because we ask Jesus to open the hearts and minds of people that we meet to want to know who he is and to ask Jesus to open our mouths to say who he is. And then he will answer that prayer. Do you see the difference? It's, it's the difference between pride and humility, which we'll come to here again. I'm, I'm taking too much of our early time on this. Let's look at verses 19 through 21, where he says this. Know this, my beloved brothers. This is wisdom. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So there he is with the anger. If you get angry and you act, it doesn't really fix it. 
Yeah? Even if you get what you want, it isn't how God does it. Therefore, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive. Notice, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That connects to the first part. Be quick to hear, slow to speak. Don't assume you know. I was just chatting with somebody this week who he said, you know, I feel like this other stuff is not Christianity. It, it, it makes me feel more like myself. And I'm thankful that what came out of my mouth next was, yes, but ourselves aren't so great. And he said, yeah, it's true. <laughs> Get right back out of his mouth. We need less of ourselves and more of Jesus, more of his word to reform us, to transform us, and all these things. All right. So be swift to hear. Notice it's pointing you to the implanted word. Now look at verses 22 through 25. This is going to get into this chapter two stuff where he says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. All right. See, it says doers. You're justified by works. That's that's what the, the skeptic will say. You are an idiot. It, it says to believe it. It says to believe it. To be a doer of the word is to believe the word. It's not saying earn your merit for judgment day. It's not saying atone for your sins by your own good works. It's saying that when you hear Jesus say, I forgive you, live like someone who thinks it's actually true. When you hear Jesus say, take and eat, this is my body. Take and eat it like it's actually true. When you hear Jesus say, the one who denies me before men, I will deny. But the one who speaks my name before men, I will acknowledge, will then produce his name among men. That's an act of faith. And if you really got to get down to it, when he says you shall not murder, yeah, it means don't kill babies. Yeah, okay, we agree with this, right? And if you say, oh, I don't think murder is wrong, and you go and you hack and slash and kill people, is anybody going to believe you? Of course not. They're going to think you're a a liar, because you are. But that doesn't mean that you convince the world that you hate murder just by not murdering. You also say, don't do it. When you see others doing it, don't do it. It's wrong, right? That's his point here. Don't be a hypocrite. Be one who hears the word, holds the word, speaks the word, and wherein your hands need to act. Let the word be your guide. Yes, be doers of the word, not hearers only but also hearers, got to hear it, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is, this is verse 23, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intensely at his natural face in the mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So again, looking in a mirror and not knowing who you are is a person who would hear the word of God and then walk off and live however they want. That isn't faith. If you have a king and he speaks, you care about what he says. You believe what he says. And as a result, sometimes when he says, do this, you're going to do what he says. Ah, verse 25 is what we really want to get to here. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. All right. So as Lutherans here with our law and gospel talk, this can be a little tricky. James does not mean law here the way that most Lutherans mean law. That is what you're supposed to do. James means the Old Testament. 
That's what he means. And he doesn't mean like the ceremonial codes of circumcision. He was very clear at the council in Acts that circumcision is not a requirement for the Gentiles. He just wanted to make sure we don't worship idols and kill a bunch of people. Uh, he was concerned people might think that was okay. That's what the letter from the apostles says. Yeah. So what does he mean, though? The perfect law, Torah, Old Testament, the freeing law, the law of liberty. Let's back up. Remember from last year when we talked about James' life, who he writes this book to? This is written to Jewish Christians who have fled Jerusalem during persecution and are living among the Jews in the synagogue. This is very likely the first book written in the New Testament. So he can't be saying, look at the Gospels. He can't say, read the letters of Paul. All he's saying is, look into the Old Testament as the law of liberty, he calls it. The law of freedom is what that means. And again, this is going to show itself by the end to be the place where we believe in a God of grace, a God of mercy. That Jesus Christ is the God of the Old Testament. That all of its stories and all of its prayers and all of its prophecies point to him and what he's done. Just like we looked at last week with Melchizedek and the temple. Jesus has surpassed these things by becoming their replacement. But the stories about them, the scriptures about them still point us to him. He is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is the new temple that was built up again after three days. Again, you are one with him, made one with his body, right? So looking into the law of liberty means give yourself to the Bible, believing that it's about Jesus, and it will set you free. Yes? All right. So this idea is going to continue in, uh, in chapter, chapter 2. Um, let's pick up at verse 12 of chapter 2. Uh, there's a little more about the law of love and things like that that he'll talk about. But chapter 2, verse 12, this is before he gets into that faith works justification thing. But notice what he says. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Yeah, that's grace. That's grace. That's the freedom of the Christian. That's the fact that you're not a slave, you're a son. That's the fact that you're not a serf, you're a vassal. That's the fact that you're not a shed, you're a temple. God has chosen to be for you who could be against you. So speak and act like such people. Which means if you find yourself doing evil, of course, Jesus, I repent. Show me wisdom. Teach me the way I should go. Yeah? But beyond that then, no, he's already died for you. He's already paid for you. He's bled for you. He's risen for you. For, now notice this, verse 13, judgment is without mercy on the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Is, is grace James' point? Yes. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Lutheran language, grace triumphs over works. So it's just, we just said it. Before the whole thing, he just said it. Grace triumphs over works. Does that mean don't do good works? No, of course not. Does that mean if you say, I believe in grace, and you live an evil life, anyone's going to believe you? They're not going to believe you. So, of course, you've still got to have good judgment. But that's not what triumphs. What triumphs is mercy. All right, so now, here's our section, verses 14 through 26, where it gets a little bit deep, right? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 
Can that faith save him? I'm right there with James. No is the answer, but it's not because he has faith. The point is he doesn't have faith. If you say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't give a who what Jesus said, I'm going to live however I darn well please, it's going to be a lot more than darn well. It would be the real word that I didn't throw in there, if you follow me. Yeah. That man doesn't believe at all. And that's the problem. That's what James is driving at, is someone who claims to have a faith, but doesn't have one. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, notice brother or sister. This is not just all the poor, like the ones that we try to help with our poor basket, although that's good too. It's talking about your Christian brothers and sisters here. If you come to church and you find somebody who is dressed poorly, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Ah, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If your life is not going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind according to the Holy Spirit so that when you turn on the TV and you hear all of the crap they are saying these days, you don't question it, then you're not listening to what Jesus says. That's his point. That's his point. And if you're not listening to what Jesus says, then you're not listening to what Jesus says. And Jesus is the king. Yeah? He says, verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. He's kind of, this is just a, a hypothetical argument. He's not saying that's right. He's not saying that person makes sense. He's actually saying they're an idiot. He says, show me your faith apart from your works. How do you do that? How do you show faith? You can't. That's the idea. I will show you my faith by my works. I think I like the, the King James there. I, I will show you my faith by what I do. Right? Which isn't to say, I'm going to earn works of super irrigation that you can sell as indulgences so people can buy them. It isn't to say that on judgment day, whether I'm a sheep or I'm a goat, it has everything to do with how good a person I've been. It's simply to say that when you believe in Jesus, your life changes. You're not like the other people anymore. You're called out of darkness into marvelous light. You've been illuminated by the resurrection of the Son of God. You are people of a new kingdom, people from the future, the first fruits of the life of the world to come. That's what it means. And when you believe that, you believe that. It changes you. He has a little bit of more accusation in verse 19. You believe that God is one. He's really talking to the Jews there, by the way. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's just, just believing there is a God doesn't mean that much. And if you talk to enough people out there today, you'll, you'll hear them say things. Oh, I believe in God. How often do they say they believe in Jesus, even Christians? It's, it's something. It's something how quiet the name of Jesus is, how hard it is to say, to get it on the lips. Even the demons believe Jesus is king. It doesn't really help them much. The question is, do you believe Jesus has saved you? That changes the game when you believe that. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Totally with him on this. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac at the altar? You remember that story, right? Go take Isaac, your only son, the one you waited a hundred years for. Yeah, the one who you didn't believe I was going to give you, the one who you tried to have by another woman, huh? now that he's finally here, go kill him. All raise him from the dead. Because he has to, because he's the one who all the world's going to be blessed through. So he goes and does it. Does that mean he earned something by doing that? Does the word justified here mean that he's earned it? No, that's not how James is talking. 
All it means is that it shows Abraham finally got it. He'd been forgetting the promise all the many times before. He finally understood and believed it. And so his works reflected that. Does that mean that the way to know if you have faith is to look at your works? No, he didn't say that either. He just said, if you say, I'm a Christian, I do whatever I want, you're a liar. That's all he said so far. That's all his point is. You can't walk around saying you believe when you don't. Yeah. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. There you go. Yeah. And faith was completed by his works. That is what you see in his life happens outside his body. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham, what? Believed God. And it was counted to him as righteousness. The same text Paul quotes to make it clear that you don't earn salvation by this. That the justification you get on the last day is earned by Christ. And it's given to you for your faith to believe. And that again, that believing, that trusting is his righteousness at work in you. It's counted toward you. He's called a friend of God. So verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. There's the verse. Oh no, it means judgment day, we're on our own. No, it doesn't. He's not talking about judgment day. He's talking to people fleeing persecution amongst other people who don't believe. And he's saying that if you just say, I believe, and you act like a jerk, no one's going to believe in Jesus. But if you want your brother to believe you believe, then when you see the word, you got to cling to it. When you hear the word, you want to hold on to it. When it says do this or do that, you want to do it. Huh? And I can bring it all the way back to communion and pastoral care if you want. We can bring it back to how we talk about marriage or what marriage is in our society these days. We can bring it back to our worship style. Right? There's a lot of different conversations you can have about it. The question is, do you believe what Jesus said and that that is the power of God to change lives? Or do you think it's just a get out of jail free card and I'm going to go do whatever I want like the rest of America? And he really does mean it like that, right? But you can't. If you go out and you walk on the broad road, where's the broad road go? Destruction's where it goes. So if you want other people to think you're different, that you're walking the narrow road, then you have to believe the narrow road. You have to hold to what that is, which isn't. The old covenants and all the sacrifices, uh, it, it is the law of liberty. It is to know that Christ is risen. Hallelujah. And it is to believe that mercy triumphs over judgment. And so just as he has shown mercy to us, if there is one law that summarizes all law, is that we are to be people of mercy to others. Yeah. Love. Love. The law of love. Um, he uses Rahab in verse 25 to make the same point. Verse 26 is a nice summary. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead... Right? When someone dies, they look dead. The spirit's gone. So also faith apart from works is dead. Think of faith as the spirit and your body as the works, and the two go together. And Jesus regenerates you to be people hungry for good works. Not hungry to justify yourselves. That's pride. Hungry to know you're justified, and therefore because God has shown mercy to you, to show mercy to others. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 6, where he's going to continue this theme of grace. James is all about grace. Verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace. This is following a warning about how not to reject the word when you hear it. And yet, what does he want you to hear? 
that God is a God of grace. Verse 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why does he oppose the proud? Because they don't want the grace. Oh, that makes me want to tell you just a sad story. It's, it's not one story, it's many stories. It's too often. Too often as a pastor, I've run into somebody who's in a rough situation and they need help. And I say, I can help you. And they'll go, no. They don't, they don't want the help. You know why, right? Pride. They want to stand on their own two feet. You know what? There's a good thing in doing your duty. We could use a little more of that in the young men these days, no doubt. And yet, grace is the thing. God opposes the proud because they don't want him. Because all he is is grace. He made you. He sustains you. Like You, you can't give him anything. Huh? And so if you're like, oh, I'm going to bring a sacrifice to God, he's going to say, no, you're not. He will set himself against you. If you're like, well, we're going to build a tower and make a great name for ourselves. It'll last forever. He's going to say, no, you won't. He's going to tear it down. Yeah. But he'll give more grace. He'll resist the proud and give grace to the humble. Uh, kind of flashback. Do you remember that word humble in the Old Testament means afflicted? It means like smacked down. Yeah. It means to be broken. Right? He gives grace to those who know we have nothing to give him. Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you double-minded, you sinners, and purify your hearts. Mm. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. I don't feel like I did a good enough job on this part in the previous service. Um, submission. It makes me think of jiu-jitsu. It's how you lose when you're wrestling. If someone puts you in submission. And you know you're in submission because you tap. I don't get out of this. Uh, but no one likes being in submission. That's kind of the issue. Sinners don't want to submit. We want to think that we rule. We want to think that we reign. Feminism is very against submission. It doesn't want women to believe it's good to submit to your husbands. But also, independent thinking is very against submission. It doesn't want to believe that we men are not free men in the sense of we have no king, we do what we want. Huh? But Christianity teaches that there is a monarchy that is reigning over all things. And all of us have the duty to bend the knee, to submit to him. Now, Lutherans don't talk about this a lot because there's some false teaching out there in American Christianity that tells you that if you want to have money, if you want to live a long life, just submit your heart to Jesus and feel it a whole lot. and It'll all work out better. But if it's not working out, you aren't submitting enough, so submit some more. Just give your heart, give your heart. And you get in this treadmill of emotion that you just, you just can't do it. You can't ever be good enough. That's, again, the wrong kind of justification. Huh? But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to actually submit your heart to Jesus. That every day when you wake up, you don't need to in some way bend the knee and remember that whatever you're running off to do is you as God. And you have to say, I'm not God. Jesus, you lead me. Jesus, you be my king. Jesus, I submit to you. And that to do that is to resist the devil. See that? To submit to Jesus, let's do it together. Jesus, I submit to you. Jesus, I. That's to resist the devil. 
You want to take it a step further. What was that? What verse was this one here? James 4, verse 8. If you're taking notes, make a note. James 4, verse 8. Read that one every morning this week. James 4, verse 8. When you wake up and you see that card and you're like, oh, I don't want to read it. I don't have time. You know you just found somebody, right? You know you found. You found the devil himself. Huh? You don't want to submit to Jesus. He's telling you to not resist. And there's your fight. you got a fight coming this week. It's not that hard. It's one verse. Huh? But the devil doesn't want you to read that verse. Read that verse. You win. You win. You've resisted the devil. He will flee from you. I bet you don't just read that verse. I bet you read the next one. At some point in the week, you won't be able to stop yourself. And that's how it works. Okay? That's how it works. As you get in and it starts to feed you, you're like, oh, I could use a little more of that today. Oh, oh, that gave me peace in my heart. Oh, that gave me hope. Right? And it's, it, it's amazing how forgetful we are, how easy it is to lose this again. But submit yourself to God. Make it a task to open that Bible at least once. Get to this verse. Get to one of those Psalms, Psalm 125 or Psalm 1. Say it out loud. The devil will flee from you. And when you feel that, I don't want to do it. No, that's the devil in your flesh, using your own nature against you. Resist that. Fight back with some solid willpower, knowing you've been a regenerate son of God and you have then the strength to resist. You do. All right. Chapter five, verse seven. Skipping ahead here a little bit again. Be patient, therefore, brothers, he says, until the coming of the Lord. I already um, mentioned a mission in this. And I, I don't want to be heard saying that it's like bad to tell people about Jesus. Like, that's not what I mean when I start to knock the idea of mission. But what I do mean, and I'm really kind of tired of being quiet about it, is that for a good hundred years, mission has been the, the sheep's clothing that the wolves in the church have been wearing. And what they do is they get you to get real excited about their program that they sell you. And they walk off with the money and you walk off with no more people in your church, but maybe a praise band you never even wanted. Huh? Uh, mission has been used to scuttle in all manner of lies. And so it's not that I'm against confessing Jesus. I just know that when Jesus says, look at the fields, they're ripe for the harvest. The next thing he says is pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers, that's pastors, to preach to them. But notice the first step is not go out. The first step is turn and ask Jesus for the people. I'll tell you this, and it's just speculation, I guess, at this point, but I, I've told you before, I began praying very specifically two years ago for a bard, for soldiers, and for paladins. Huh? Bard, a musician who would come and begin to transform our worship life. I'd like to keep Mr. Stair around. We're glad to have Bonnie continuing to help out. I don't want her to feel bad, but times and seasons come and go, and we needed a new man to come. And look, here he is. Will he stay forever? I don't know. But my prayer was answered. And then soldiers. That means Christian men who want to be Christian men. Preferably a few that are young because we need to build up the next generation. And I can't believe how many little nibbles have been showing up in the last two and a half months. I tell you, you join me in this prayer, please. Start asking for Christian men with their families to start being here because it's happening. It's happening already. But again, you want mission? Mission's in the prayer, not in what you go out and do. Okay, so 
as opposed to, now, there's one more part of the real mission of the church that we have, and it's not to figure out how we're going to convince everyone to come help us meet our budget. It's instead what he says in verse 7, to be patient, therefore, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The way that the mission-minded liars have deceived us over the last hundred years is by saying that the mission of the church is to take what we have and go out with it. There's nothing wrong with taking what you have and sharing it, but that's not the mission of the church. The mission of the church, he just said it, is to take what we have and keep it. Not in such a way that we never speak it, but in such a way that we let no one take it away from us. Because as the church has been boasting about all the converts it's going to make for the last hundred years, what we've been doing is losing everybody, our children most especially. We have not kept even what we had. What we think we have is being taken from us. So what I want us to do, St. Paul, is not to be discouraged, but to understand the seasons. The rains come. The rains go. There's a growing season. There's a dying and a pruning season. We've been in a very, very rough pruning season. Let's be patient and sow the seed that we know always grows. Yeah. What is that? Look what he says. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. He says it twice. Christ has died. Christ is risen. There you go. Yeah? Hold that thought. Keep that thought. Be ready to speak that thought when someone asks. All right. As an example of patience, verse 10, he speaks of the prophets of old. Another hat tip to the law of liberty. Look at the Old Testament. They spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. There's the idea again of patience. To have an endurance that remains steadfast. To not let the wolf in sheep's clothing trick you. To not let the thief slip in and steal your crown. And so he brings up Job. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Uh, what does he mean there? But notice mercy. Yeah, he's about grace and mercy again. God's all about grace and mercy again. You want an example? Look at Job. Job, isn't he an example of suffering? Is that how it ended? That's well, not how it ended, is it? Now, no. Job went through the fire and came out on the other side, just like the people of Israel went through the wilderness to the promised land, just like we walk through these gray and latter days toward the life of the world to come trusting that our God, even when he gives us trials of various kinds, he's doing it to strengthen our faith so that we would know the joy of seeing what we will be and cling to it with full assurance. Full assurance, not double-minded. Confident that he will answer your prayers. Confident that he will send you the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom. Confident that one day his eyes are going to shift everything. You're going to see him as he is. You're going to see each other as we are. And all of this insanity will slip and fall away. Let's just glance at verses 19 and 20 here to close. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sin. The theme there again is repentance. 
And the theme there again is having a word that never passes away. Having a truth that never changes. So somebody wanders from the church. They don't like what we're doing here. We should change it. That's not what it says. It says try to bring them back. Give them the actual truth again. Now, it doesn't say this part here, but it is true. They may go. God sometimes sends a delusion upon people so that iniquity is added to iniquity and off they go. And Paul says there will be divisions among the church to show those of you who are approved. That is to show those of you who have the true word. So then again, devote yourselves to that word. Know that it is your food, that it is the transforming of your mind, that it is a shield and a buttress against the lies of this age. And remember that you as a people are doing this together. It's not just you or you or you or me. It's us, a body, planting the seed, praying to the Lord of the harvest, begging him not only for our sustenance on the journey, but that we would see better days here in this place for his church. And ask of those who know, the Lord will answer. In the name of Jesus, amen.